Amen. Good morning. Good morning, guys. Happy mid-July. Man, it is pretty nuts that we are almost at the end of our summer sermon series. We have, this is the second to last week, and we are almost done with the Apostles' Creed. And it's been a really good summer to dig into all of these beliefs and really think about what we actually believe when we say the creed, but also when we come to church and when we profess that we are Christians. What does that actually mean? So now we are in the second to last week of our sermon series. And if you've been following along, you know that that line, the third to last line, says, I believe first, and then says, in the forgiveness of sins. So I drew the short straw this week, and I'm preaching about sin. So Stephen got out this week, and we are actually talking about this concept of sin. And you know what's really interesting to me when I was looking at this? At first was actually the placement of this line. It kind of can get lost. It's in that last stanza, and it's kind of at the bottom. And it's funny because actually when you ask most Christians, like what is the fundamental belief in your faith, you'll get something like Jesus died for our sins. And in fact, like if you drive anywhere in rural Texas, rural any state, you will see billboards that proclaim Jesus died for our sins as if that is somehow the summary of all that Christ did. And in some circles, and maybe you've attended these churches or you know folks or you're raised like this, that sin can be the centerpiece of the faith. It's what we talk about. It's all that we think about. Addressing the problem of sin is is a big deal for some circles. That's not true in our particular circle, but it it doesn't mean that it's not important. And so today, what we're going to do So we're going to think a little bit of this question of sin. What is it and how was it solved or how do we solve it? But before we get there, we need to understand that the placement of this line is important. We cannot properly understand sin unless we understand all the rest of the creed that comes before it. We have to understand, in other words, who God is, as the creator, as our father, as Jesus, the redeemer. We have to understand the Holy Spirit. And kind of oddly, actually, we actually have to understand what the church is too. Because it is only in and through participating in the body of the church that we can have a proper understanding of what sin is. So let's begin by starting with the most basic of questions. What is sin. Well, in the Bible, and that's where we're going to go from, this word sin, it has a literal meaning. It means to miss the mark. And maybe you've heard about this. And it's used in the context that we would assume is sin, moral failure. But it's also used in the context of literally missing a mark. So in Proverbs, they'll talk about like you're lost. And if you can't find your way, you're going to miss your destination. If you don't heed to wisdom, you miss the mark. You sin, in other words. And then there's other references where like there's a bow and arrow and you're trying to hit the target. And if you miss it, that word sin comes up like missing the mark. That's the literal meaning of it. But we have to dig a little bit deeper because the next question is, okay, great. What's the target? 
What's the goal? What are we trying to aim for? If sin is missing the mark, then what is that goal that we're aiming for? Well, biblically, there is a version of this target that's presented. Mostly, it's the idea that the mark is to be fully who God intended us to be as humans. You see, he created us in the image of God, meaning when he made us, he made us like God. And in doing so, he made each and every one of us a sacred being, someone who is worthy of respect, someone who is worthy of dignity. And so when you live into that fully, when you treat others with justice and righteousness, when you treat others with respect and dignity, when you love God and love others, then you are on target. You are not missing the mark. But there's also an idea of sin that creeps into the Bible that we get pretty early on in the Bible. It's this idea that sin is not just about the action, it's not the consequence, that's part of it, but there's something in your mind that's going along as well. You see, I was reading this week and some theologians, early ones, used to believe that the heart of sin is self-deception. The heart of sin is that we deceive ourselves. You get this in the Bible when kings will go pursue people in the name of national security, but really they're doing something that's going to hurt the community and hurt others. And they turn around and say, well, I have sinned. You see, they justify their actions over and over and over again. They tell themselves that they're doing something good, but in fact, they're doing something sinful. And over and over again, God calls them out on this. Look, you think you're doing right, but you're not. That is sinful. And eventually, God gives them a law in order to tell them, hey, this is missing the mark. This is how you make the mark. But still, they deceive themselves. And we see this in ourselves too, right? This tendency to tell ourselves that something is good when it is not. And the hard part about it is deceiving ourselves is so built into who we are, sometimes we can't even see it ourselves. Have you ever been friend to someone, or maybe a sister or a brother or a mom or a dad to someone who's in a really bad relationship? And you know it, like you know this is not going to end well. And you can tell the effects and you can see the consequences in their life and it's not gonna go well and you know that this is leading them down the path. And you don't name it as sinful because that seems a little judgy and intense, but it is, something's off about it. And you know it. But no matter how many times you try to present it, you try to tell them and name the consequences, they cannot see it. We as humans are not prepared to know what we don't want to know. And we do it all the time. Not just in other people's lives can we see it, but in our own. We justify everything. We tell ourselves that, well, I'm working so that I can, a few more days, so I can make more money for the family, so I can send the kids to camp, so I can save for retirement. I'm, I'm gonna not do that thing, or not be with my kids, or not be with my family, but it's for a good reason. It's for a justifiable reason. Surely that's okay. Or when we go and, and talk to someone, this is my favorite, because I do this all the time. Like, you're in a situation, 
and it's clearly gossip. That's what it is. It's gossip. But you're going to justify it. You're going to say, but I just need to share information or I just need to vent. I just needed to vent and let that go. And that felt self-righteous and okay for me to say it like that. So I'm going to say that. And your mind is like doing these flips, trying to justify what you're doing. You see it all the time in those who are caught in patterns of addictions, those that are life-destroying and those that aren't. People who are in denial, that's the first sign of addiction often, right? Our minds can play tricks on us, can convince ourselves that we are, in fact, not missing the mark. Maybe that we're creating a whole different target altogether, one that is better than that that was led to us and left to us by God. This idea of sin as self-deception, it runs deep. It runs deep in our patterns of how we act, so much so that we have learned how to redefine our bad decisions as good. But that begs the question, how did we become such bad judges of good and evil? How did this start where we could start justifying our decisions? Well, it starts early on. I think we get some clues in where the word sin is mentioned first in the Bible. And oddly, though you might not believe it, it's actually not in Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is the infamous scene where Adam and Eve give in to the temptation that they can redefine good and evil based on their own wisdom, that they can take from the fruit and decide what they want for themselves rather than follow God's will. But we don't see the word sin there. We see it in the next chapter in Genesis 4, one that we don't talk about very often. It's a story of their children, Cain and Abel, their sons. And Cain and Abel, they were preparing offerings for the Lord, and the Lord favors Abel. And he says, oh, I love your offering, Abel. Thank you so much. And he starts to favor him more and more. And Cain, on the other hand, gets kind of mad and jealous and angry. He starts to feel like he deserves more. He starts to feel angry, and God warns him and says, if you don't do what is good, sin, that's the first time it's mentioned in the Bible, if you don't do what is good, sin is crouching at your door. It wants you, but you can rule over it. I'm going to read that part one more time. Sin is crouching at your door. It wants you, but you can rule over it. That first notion of sin is not based on a singular action, a choice, or a decision. It's portrayed as this wild and hungry animal that wants to consume us. It has this feeling that sin is something deeper than we thought. It isn't just a choice that we make, an intellectual decision. It, it runs deeper than that. It's something that is deep inside of us that has the power to consume us. You see, it doesn't just affect our actions, it affects the source of our actions, our very hearts. Our hearts are corrupted with this sin that when given the freedom, we would choose to rival God rather than reflect God. 
just as Adam and Eve did. When given the choice, because our hearts are wild with this power of sin, we would choose to rival God, to be like him, rather than reflect his image. And the odd part about this and what's revealed in Cain and Abel is that one of the lies we tell ourselves about sin is that it will only affect me. If I do this thing, if I make this choice, it will only affect me. But we see from the very beginning that that is not how sin works. With Cain and Abel, he makes this choice. If you don't know how the story ends, he kills his brother, right? He makes this choice and he builds this city. And what happens to that city is that gradually the people start to go into chaos. They commit all this evil. There's a chain reaction started off by Cain's sin that moves through the city. Which is why when I teach about sin, when I talk about it in Grove Kids, you know the analogy that I use? I talk about it as a sickness or a disease because it doesn't just affect one of us. It's set up as a chain reaction. It moves through not only relationships, but bodies and people. It moves through places. It affects whole areas to the point where death, comes to all who it touches. There's theologians who describe sin, and this gets pretty trippy pretty fast, but just think about it with me. They describe sin as non-existence. The idea being that God is life. God is being. And if you choose God, if you choose the life-giving choice, then you are moving towards God. But if you choose death, if you choose non-existence, you're moving in a path of decay and destruction, not what God intended for you. And that's why this disease, this sickness of sin, it starts to move through things from the garden. And as it does, we get decay in our bodies. We get hunger and poverty in our cities. We get brokenness and jealousy and spite in our relationships. Death, in all of its forms, starts to move through the world. And then the question became to the Israelites, as it does for us, how do you solve the problem of sin? Some people very quickly would say, well, God's good and all-powerful. He can get rid of sin. He can just wipe it out. Like, why didn't he just get rid of it? But the reality is that if God got rid of sin, he would have to get rid of us. If God got rid of sin, he would have to get rid of us. Because our hearts, they're prone to the sickness that's deep inside of us. And he doesn't want to take away our freedom, and so he allows us to choose. So instead of getting rid of us, really early on in the Torah, God gives the Israelites a different way to solve the problem of sin. And it's one that today feels a little barbaric, but it was a custom, a symbol, and it was a powerful one at the time. 
one that was different from other types of symbols. In theology, we talk about this as the sacrificial cult. It means that the sacrifices that the Israelite priests made regularly on behalf of Israel, they would sacrifice mostly lambs and goats in order to atone or cover up Israel's sin. And to us, again, it seems a little crazy, but that symbol did so much to the Israelites. It proved so much about who God was. You see, not only did God allow that animal to stand in for Israel, to wipe away their debt, but there was a second part of the ritual we don't talk about much anymore, where the priest, after he had sacrificed the animal, after the animal had taken the place of Israel as a whole, he would then take the blood, a symbol of life, and he would start to sprinkle it over the temple and over the ground of the temple and all these particular places. And what it did is it took these places that were defiled, that were dead, that were destroyed, that had been touched by the sickness of sin, and it brought them back to life. It was a symbol that not only are your sins covered, but I am bringing you back to life again. And that symbol, the hope, was that it would turn the Israelites' hearts to a place of repentance. And that was built into the ritual, that the Israelites would repent and turn away from their sin, that they would be reminded of God's mission to take a rebellious people and turn them into a holy people. They would be reminded of God's presence with them through the sacrifice. It was a mysterious thing, but it, it symbolized a lot this turning around, this newness, this fighting, this pattern of sin and saying, no, I will rescue you again and again and again. And the Israelites practiced this for thousands of years. But over time, those sacrifices became meaningless. Their sins became greater and greater. Death started to move into all sorts of places. Israel as a nation was no longer the holy and set-apart nation. It blended in with all the rest. And the prophets who were sent spoke to Israel about this and said, hey, we have to turn around, we have to turn around. And eventually, prophets started to dream of something else. Isaiah, one of the most famous prophets, dreamed one day of a living and perfect sacrifice who would come and solve the problem of sin forever. And he wrote, thousands of years before, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our inequities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. How do we solve the problem of sin? God gave us a system, a symbol that he hoped would draw us to him time and time again. And when it failed, he decided to send himself. And he did for two reasons. The first is that Jesus is fully human, meaning 
he shows us what it means to be fully human. He shows us what the target is. He shows us where the mark is. You see, the law wasn't enough. We found ways to justify around it, but Jesus says, no, I will give you a life, and I will show you what that target is. And we spend time, lots of time, talking and thinking about what that life is in the gospel, because we want to understand what that target is best for ourselves, so that we can walk in that way and mold our hearts to be more and more like Jesus. And the second reason Jesus came is that through his death and resurrection, he healed our hearts forever. And it doesn't mean that we don't sin, but what it means is that our sins are covered up. They can't be seen by God anymore, and our hearts are able to mold into the pattern of God better than they could before Jesus that we are able to live like Jesus more fully now in freedom than we were before his death. And there's a lot of questions, rightfully so, about the how. Like, what did it actually mean that he died on the cross? How did that actually work? Like, how did that mean that he died on the cross and that forgave us for our sins? It doesn't make a lot of sense to us. And to be honest, I don't know the exact answer. I imagine it's something like a mystery, but often I think about it as a, as a diamond, like this multifaceted answer of what it meant that Jesus died on the cross. And I imagine those facets of the diamond is the same as the sacrifice system that God sent up earlier in the Old Testament. There's an element where Jesus died in our place, a ransom, a debt that was paid. There's also a cleansing something we sing about and we'll sing about later in service of his blood where we are taking our dead parts of our life and his love, his love and blood gives life to those places again. That we see re resurrection in our life. That we see purification in our life because of what was done on the cross. And the third, I, I think when we look at the cross, what Jesus wants us to see is that we too are moved to repentance, then we can see his sacrifice, that he did not need to die, that he constantly chose the way of life, not death, that he did not need to be destroyed, and that we can be inspired by that example to repent as well. And lastly, just as the Israelites did in the Old Testament, that we can be reminded by Jesus' sacrifice that God is still taking a rebellious and wild people and making them into a holy people. And that now we have the Holy Spirit, God's personal presence in our lives that takes us and our hearts and teaches us what that target is more clearly than ever before that we begin to understand what that target is because of the Holy Spirit working in our life. So today, as you leave this place, and as you think about this idea of sin and what it means in your life, as you imagine what this sickness and death starts to look like in your own life, I hope that you have that imagery of Jesus on the cross. And I hope that 
as you look at it, whatever resonates with you, whatever that image of sacrifice, whether it's ransom or cleansing or this renewal of covenant or repentance, whatever it is for you in this moment, then you can take hold of that and know that because of that action, all of our sins are covered. We are completely free. We have no bound to death anymore because it has been taken care of. It has been finished. We don't have to work within the confines of the law anymore because we have been given a target that is real in our lives and that is Jesus, our Savior. Today, we are going to say the Apostles' Creed as we always do. And today, I hope that we say it in a note of what we formally call confession. It's something we don't do super often here, but we do at communion. The idea of taking our sins and putting them before the Lord. Just like the Israelites put their sheep and their goats before the Lord as a symbol of their sin. And do you know what would happen after the sacrifice was done? They would take that goat and they would carry it out into the wilderness, outside of the community. Because the idea was that those sins no longer lived on in the community of Israel anymore. That they were done. That they were finished. And we can stand more confidently in the freedom that that is true once and for all. So let us stand as we say the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose again from dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Let us pray for our time together as we close out. Lord, we are so thankful that you are our redeemer. This language of sacrifice can feel so strange to us. It can feel haunting and odd. But Lord, let us live in this metaphor. This metaphor that we are covered that where there was death, there is now life. That where there was sickness, there is now healing. That where there was decay, we have been resurrected. Jesus, your life is our target. We miss the mark often, Lord, but change our hearts that they may be inspired to follow you. That you may take our steps our choices, our actions, our very desires, and that you may hold them in your hands and mold them to follow and live like you. Amen. We're going to sing a song that I don't know if we've ever sung here. Michael, have we ever sung this here? Negative. Negative. We never sing this song, but you might recognize it. 
because it is an old school song that you might have grown up singing at camp, or maybe if you went to a country church, you might have heard it there. And we don't sing it often because it dwells on this image of the blood of Jesus. But I think today there is a powerful reminder in that because the blood, it isn't about death, even though that's what we think of it as. The blood is a sign of life, a life that we are covered in, that we get to live. So as the band sings the song, as the offering is collected, and as we join them and the end, I hope that you'll sing these words, knowing and confidence and assurance that your sins have been forgiven. The ushers may come forward. <laughs>